Welcome to Order from Ashes. I'm Thanasi Kambanis, and today I'm talking to Alex Stark from the New America Foundation. Today we're we're actually doing the first in what's going to be a regular series here at Order from Ashes, uh, where we're looking into the nuts and bolts, uh, deep in the weeds of what progressive foreign policy should look like. Uh, so what we're doing is we're going to different uh, different experts, different folks, and asking them in their area of expertise. Uh, not just to critique what's wrong with existing policy, but to actually think out loud about a blueprint for what progressive policy should look like. Uh, so Alex, um, you uh, happen to work on two issues uh, that I've been wanting to uh, to start uh, working on this question about, uh, counterterrorism uh, and Yemen, uh, which are not exactly the same thing, but there's overlap uh, between those two. Uh, so first of all, thank you for agreeing to come on Order from Ashes. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So this question of counterterrorism, um, and I mean, I, I think you probably share some of my discomfort with that that term being the framework or the sort of master narrative for a lot of policy, and we can get into that as much as you like. Uh, but when we think about counterterrorism uh, and the actual threats that that the U.S. and its partners and allies deal with, what uh, what like start start me thinking about how you think about the right way to do this. Uh, and of course, as you go, I'm sure you'll be pointing out a lot of the things that are wrong about, about the way we currently are doing it. Yeah. So I think of, I think about this in terms of the short term and then the longer term. So in the shorter term, we, we definitely need to find more kind of just and humane ways to um, counter and contain terrorist violence and, and um, promote stability more broadly. And because, you know, terrorist violence affects um, not just Americans, but people around the world. Um, but I also think we need a more fundamental rethink of our approach to counterterrorism. And that's more in the long-term bucket of how we even start thinking about these issues. Um, so I, I'll start with the long-term first, actually. Um, yeah, I agree. That's probably I, I, more important. Okay. <laughs> and I um, I look at this through the the lens of Yemen, like like you mentioned. I, I happen to study that um, closely, but I also think it's, it's particularly emblematic of this approach because – um, since 9/11, even even before um, that, the U.S. approach to Yemen has been, uh, for the most part, through the lens of counterterrorism. That's where U.S. national interests are seen to to be. Um, you know, other things don't really matter to core national security interests, but counterterrorism in Yemen does. So, um, interestingly, through 2014, even early 2015. Um, which is when uh, there was a, a coup and then a, a, the beginning of a civil war in Yemen and then an internationalized civil war in Yemen. Um, at that same time, uh, the Obama administration was holding up the U.S. approach to counterterrorism and calling it the Yemen model and saying, like, this was the model for the coalition um, against ISIS and, and for counterterrorism activity more broadly. And the idea behind the Yemen model is really I mean, it's it's really kind of emblematic of of the U.S. counterterrorism approach more broadly. I think, which is this kind of wanting to have it both ways thing. So there's these there are these really maximalist aims about, um, you know, not just containing terrorist groups or not just preventing an attack or or minimizing maybe the the likelihood of attack on the homeland, but uh, you know, completely destroying these terrorist groups forever. Um, but also a more minimalist approach in terms of resources. So we don't want to put troops on the ground, especially after the experiences of Afghanistan and Iraq. 
Um, we want to protect the lives of, of military service members, but also spend less money, fewer resources. And so that often um, meant partnering with corrupt governments, often corrupt governments, um, often autocratic and repressive governments, um, and then supplementing those partnerships sometimes with you know, drone campaigns, airstrikes, sometimes special forces, um, other kinds of security assistance assistance rather. And I think, I think Yemen shows exactly why that approach is so myopic because at the same time it was being held up as this success in the counterterrorism space, this, this uh, massive and really tragic war was beginning and the, that still is ongoing. And of course is exactly the kind of conflict that creates um, the conditions that make it easier for terrorist groups to uh, grow and to take root. Um, so I think, I think Yemen is really a good demonstration of why in the, this longer term approach, we need to start thinking a lot more holistically, not just saying we can focus only on this one issue of counterterrorism and kind of put everything else aside. Um, but that we need to think a lot more holistically about, you know, what does stability really look like is an autocratic corrupt government, uh, (laughs) that represses its citizens, but, has been in place for a while. Like, is that really stability? Um, and I, I would say no. And I would say there needs to be a much more focus on issues, you know, a broad range of issues from um, accountability, uh, more just transitions, thinking about the distribution of resources. So, you know, different ethnic groups or, or religious groups aren't favored necessarily. Um, finding ways to have more sustainable economies so that people can actually have jobs and support their families and, and, you know, have, um, you know, a better life. Those kinds of things are ultimately the best ways to combat terrorism and to minimize extremism in my view. Right. So you've raised a lot of great issues, Alex. Uh, I mean, great issues. You've raised, you've raised a lot of the complicated issues, uh, uh that, that are at the intersection of this sort of problems of violence, problems of stability, problems of, what is in America's interest in places like Yemen or Iraq or, or the wider Middle East versus what is in the interest of those the people who live there? Um, and so I, I, I want to I want I, I, actually I'm trying to not use the word unpack. So I want to ask you uh, in, in turn about a couple of things you raised. And the first one I just want to start with my problem with the term terrorism and counterterrorism, right? Like we like you know you you're you're talking about a whole range of uh, uh, like challenges to state authority and to stability from violent groups. Some of them are listed as terrorist groups by the U.S. Some of them are not. Um, you know, when we think about Yemen or Iraq, is it only counterterrorism when the problem group is on the terror list? Um, and is it not a a terrorism problem or a CT problem when it's some other militia that is doing the same terrible things that end up being just as much not in our interests or in the interests of the people who live there, but are being, you know, infringed upon by some violent group that hasn't hit the, hit the, the terror list or not. Um, you know, is it like, should we be talking about this as a CT problem or should we be talking about this as like a rights and violence and, and stability problem? It's, tough because on the one hand, I think that's exactly the right way to be thinking about these issues that we can't separate counterterrorism and think of it as its own kind of thing that we can do without attending to these other you know problems and issues. But I also worry about the, the kind of post 9-11 um, global war on terror trend of, of like 
ranking counterterrorism as the most important thing above everything else and then kind of securitizing everything around it. So I don't know if it's best to call that counterterrorism or not, but I, t- I agree with, with uh, your broader point, definitely. So when you look at like so the 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 Yemen model, the problem with it uh, that I understand you you to have just described is that uh, is that there was a maximalist goal with a sort of lazy minimalist means. So like the United States wants to completely eliminate uh, ISIS uh, uh, in Yemen or Al Qaeda in Yemen, uh, but on the other hand, it doesn't actually want to take any risk or invest any of its own direct resources in it and. And I guess, I mean, I'm sympathetic to this. Your argument is that that ends up backfiring, right? So even if you get some kind of short-term security achievement against one or another group, what you produce is hyper-empowered, terrible local partners and and sort of proliferating uh, violence. So that sounds right to me. Uh, And my question is, what um, just... Starting with the security problem, what is the better alternative approach if the United States wants to, whether it's in Yemen or Iraq or some other place where groups, Takfiri groups like ISIS are active, what is a constructive way of, you know, countering the violent threat to the U.S. and its partners' interests uh, uh, proffered by these groups while actually spreading stability instead of instability uh, to counter those groups? Yeah, I think that that speaks to the kind of what are the short term things that we need to do to make the the current approach at least uh, a little better, um, if not perfect. Um, I mean, I guess there are a few things that I, I think about here, and I'd love to hear what you think, too. Um, I think we need a lot more transparency just in general about where we're fighting in the world, about um, the laws that are, are used to to justify that use of force or, or security assistance. Um, and especially the humanitarian effects of what we're doing. So, um, you know, one example is that in October, I think the Biden administration formally released its policy for for limiting drone strikes outside of active war zones. It was kind of like the, the drone policy had been under consideration for a long time, and then it, it, it came out, it was formalized, except that the policy is actually classified. So we don't know exactly what the policy is. Um, but But all that is to say, I think that you know, that kind of transparency is important on a moral level on, on, on in terms of wanting to know what the U.S. is doing in the world, what our taxpayer dollars are being spent on, um, and, and a governance problem too, right, on a democratic level that we need to be able to see and understand and assess what our government is doing. Um, but I, I, I think it will also help us um, to kind of reckon with or come to terms with the costs of the counterterrorism approach that we've pursued, um, you know, over the past few decades, and and start to really understand what are the and and reckon with what are the trade offs here. Well, yeah, I was going to just jump in and try and build off some of the things I've, I've heard you yeah, say yeah. in the last few minutes. So, you know, like we agree that over-securitizing complex problems is detrimental. On the other hand, I think from other conversations we've had that we that we agree that there is a real security problem that we want to continue to address, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, you know, 
it, largely, I think the American global war on terror has been like a, a, a disaster and a series of own goals, uh, but it has had some uh, some useful lessons. One is that uh, it's it's allowed finally some forms of ambiguity to be ac- acceptable. So, you know, in the hyper securitized uh, uh, discourse around like what America should do about uh, groups like uh, the Taliban or Al Qaeda or ISIS, uh, people are willing now to accept that you can't ever fully eliminate these groups and you can't ever fully eliminate the threat posed to them. So there is a sort of, you know, the, the, the paradigm is one of ongoing management and engagement. And I think that's something we can build on usefully and say like, okay, a productive policy of counterterrorism and stability would for starters, always accept ambiguity, right? That, that we're not going to get ever uh, 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 complete outcomes of, you know, complete security, complete uh, stability. Um, and, uh, and, and that's good because if that's what we're aiming for, we're going to always be failing. Um, and what I think we, we can learn from these uh, flawed examples uh, of, of the CT approach in Yemen, Iraq, and, and Afghanistan is that we have to include uh, uh, the military piece of our response um, and embed it in something that actually promotes our long-term view of what U.S. international and, and partner interests are. And and the ones that jump to mind for me right away are uh, uh, rebuilding the places that we destroy fighting groups like ISIS uh, in, in the sort of kinetic military phase of, of CT. And the other, which is huge and so obvious, and I can't believe we don't invest resources in it, uh, which is justice, accountability, and, and, uh, and you know, a sort of fair and reasonable uh, juridical and detainee process for the people who have participated in, in, on, on the wrong side in these, uh, in these terrible conflicts. Yeah, I think I think you're totally right. I think I think about it in terms of of you know not just how do we end endless wars, but how do we do so responsibly? And that will probably look a little different in each context. But I think in each context, we need to do a lot of thinking about what what are our responsibilities here um, now that the, these conflicts, this damage has already happened, and does that look like reparations? Um, does that look like aid? Um, there's a lot of conversation about uh, condolence payment for civilians who are uh, killed in, in U.S. strikes, which I, I think is an important conversation. Those kinds of questions of, um, you know, how should we be thinking about doing this in a just and, and responsible way? And I think uh, your point about, like, um, re- repatriating and, and reintegrating uh, foreign nationals who are in uh, camps and prisons um is another important one because we know that those are the precise places that kind of incubate extremism and help to perpetuate extremism and that are humanitarian, you know, catastrophes on top of that. Yeah. I mean, I I think these are like the best ideas in this space are non-starters in the short term on a practical level, but I actually think they're very important uh, for us to articulate as you know, when we talk about what would a progressive foreign policy look like Um, and, and one sort of, a very simple uh, way of starting the conversation that that I'm coming around to is to say like, okay, um, if we're going to fight groups like ISIS uh, uh, or, you know, the other uh, extremist groups that are active in places like Yemen, um, we have to think about a multiplier of like three or five for every dollar that, um, that is spent on the direct military piece of, of, 
of addressing the problem. So, you know, if you're going to, you know, loosely talk about like drones and bombs and, and whatever direct military support, then for each dollar we spend on that, we've got to spend a dollar on reconstruction and we've got to spend a dollar on, you know, even before you get to the long-term stuff you talked about, just on the short-term, uh, like managing the, uh, the extremists. So that's, you know, detention centers, uh, courts, uh, or, or, or tribal uh, hearings or whatever the judicial, uh, whatever process exists in the society at hand to deal with not the, the foreign fighters, but the local fighters that are in these groups. Um, and, uh, and that's actually, I mean, it's, it's, it's insane to me that this is not part of what the U.S. invests in. Like what happens, so I mean, you, you mentioned condolence payments, that's critical. Um, you know, are we going to, are we going to fund alternatives to either, you know, uh, uh, wholesale release of former combatants or wholesale, like law, you know, torture and, and, and capricious, uh, uh, processing like we've seen in Iraq of, of people affiliated with ISIS like that, that doesn't make any sense. Even if you don't care as, as I do about the moral and, and, and justice implications of, of, of foregoing accountability, it's just a practical, like it's, it's, it's an insane risk to not actually spend money and resources trying to manage these people who until, you know, a few minutes ago in, in policy terms were fighting for, uh, you know, as foot soldiers in ISIS or Al Qaeda or, or groups like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and we know even from, you know, studies of conflict and peace building writ large, that that piece of accountability, a just transition of, um, demobilizing fighters. Those are all the pieces that are really critical to ensuring that conflicts don't start again. Um, and like you said, the fact that we focus overwhelmingly, um, you know, both in terms of the conversation and what we actually fund on these these really uh, kind of short-sighted or short-term military approaches and not attending to those broader questions, the, the roots of causes of these, of these conflicts and, and crises that can create instability um, is troubling and calls for kind of a fundamental reframing of how we, how we think about these issues. You're listening to Order from Ashes. I'm Thanasi Kambanis, and I'm talking to Alex Stark from the New America Foundation about what a progressive uh, foreign policy would look like uh, on counterterrorism and Yemen. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Today's world is changing faster than ever. Old rules don't apply and the new rules haven't been written. At least not yet. I'm Rohan Advani and I produce the Order from Ashes podcast at the Century Foundation, a leading progressive think tank that promotes peace, cooperation and equality at home and abroad. On Order from Ashes, we try to make sense of a new international system in which America no longer dictates the global order. Join us as we talk to activists and analysts on the front lines of the most pressing issues in international policy. Hi, I'm Thanasi Kambanis. You're listening to Order from Ashes, Century International's uh, podcast, and I'm talking to Alex Stark about what a progressive foreign policy on counterterrorism in Yemen would look like. And before the break, uh, we were talking about the sort of root causes um, approach and and what would a more holistic uh, uh, approach towards violence uh, uh, and and terrorist groups look like. Um, and I want to 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 go uh, to ask you to go into a little bit more detail on the Yemen case itself because I, I know you've you've followed this very closely for a long time. I guess you did your dissertation on it. Um, that's why you're Dr. Alex Stark on Twitter. Um, and, uh, 
Uh, I want I, I want you to tell us a little bit about like you know this this Yemen model as the Obama administration uh, sold it and 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 how uh, how it has turned out or not turned out to be a good outcome uh, for Yemenis and in particular like what kinds of partners did we empower in Yemen and how how much are they serving U.S. interests or U.S. partner interests uh, now you know that that Yemen is is in this sort of seventh year of a, of a civil war. Yeah. Well, the, the U S approach to the conflict in Yemen is also has this kind of weird bifurcated thing where people tend to think about the counterterrorism war as one piece and then completely separately. Um, there's this other war going on that, uh, began as a civil war amongst different factions and then drew international intervention, including from the Saudi led coalition, um, even though those things are happening in the same place at the same time uh, in a lot of different ways. Um, but the the approach is kind of people tend to divide it into two different different ideas. Um, but I think I think it still reflects that that problem of of the Yemen model or the the trying to have it both ways approach in that um, again, it's an issue of the us seeing Yemen um, not not for itself, not for what's good for you know the people there or, um, you know, a broader conception of, of stability and, and maybe well-being, what that would look like, but um, about other issues. And and in 2015, it was about um, U.S. relations with our security partners in the region, especially Saudi Arabia and also the UAE. And Obama administration officials have have said and have actually written about this pretty extensively that. Um, when they they were approached by the Saudi-led coalition in March 2015, and they basically said, look, uh, we're going to launch a military intervention here. It'll probably take about six weeks. <laughs> it'll be it'll be done pretty quickly. Uh, are, you know, are you in or that, are you out? That's even more naive and over-optimistic <laughs> than the U.S. estimates about pacifying Iraq in 2003. It does. It does raise questions about uh, judgment. <laughs> Um, and, and basically, uh, the officials were, it's not so much that they were excited about the war, the intervention, but they were worried about their relationship with these security partners. They thought that um, U.S. support for, you know, some of the protest movements during the Arab Spring and then, um, as was going on in 2015, negotiations around uh, the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, that these issues were really kind of stretching the relationship to the breaking point. And you can, it's it's funny because you can see um, these kind of threads in the conversation even now. There's a similar conversation around, you know, is the U.S. putting too much pressure on these relationships? Should it try to, you know, do things to win over Saudi Arabia and, and the UAE and other security partners um, so that they'll do things that are in our interest. But it's the same same situation in 2015 when they said, we'll support this intervention. So the U.S. the U.S. backs a war in Yemen in 2015 in order to please its troublesome partners, Saudi Arabia and UAE. And the, and the idea, the theory of the case was if the U.S. does this, it's going to save these very important relationships with Saudi and the UAE. And now, seven years later, we've seen, in fact, it didn't save the relationship. The relationship is at its worst crisis point ever. And these governments, which I think are are kind of terrible partners, but the, setting that aside, these governments, if not terrible partners, problematic partners. But in any case, the point is these governments feel that the U.S. has betrayed them anyway. So in the, in the end, the U.S. didn't get anything 
for 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 being complicit in this terrible war. And on the other hand, now I mean, and and I don't want to jump ahead. If you 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 were you were going to make another point about about the sort of uh, inefficacy of trying to use this as a, as a trade off for other relationship management issues, but I was going to say it seems like we're now at this other extreme, which is also problematic, where all the U.S. cares about is not being complicit. So it's not like the U.S. wants to resolve the problems in Yemen. The U.S. is just like as long as we're not any longer sort of authoring these uh, 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 indiscriminate airstrikes, then we don't really care what happens. Is that, uh, what, is that, is that right? Is that your take? Yeah. I, yeah, I think that that is right. And that kind of um, this, one of the secondary or, you know, another consideration that officials uh, talked about is the idea that if, well, if we're involved, then we can at least kind of try to steer things in the right direction. We can provide humanitarian training. We can provide the right kind of, weapons that are maybe more targeted. Um, there, there's a foreign affairs article that a, a couple of former officials wrote about this decision where they said it was kind of like getting into a car with a drunk driver <laughs> in the sense that they could maybe, it was a dangerous situation, but maybe they can kind of, you know, steer things in the right direction and prevent more, um, you know, more bad things from happening. Well, don't we all and, know that you're actually not supposed to get in that car and just hope <laughs> for the best? Like you're actually supposed to not get in the car in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's an interesting metaphor. <laughs> it really is. Um, but and I, and that was the justification you saw I, I, during the Obama administration, but even even during the Trump administration too. That you know, if we don't stay engaged, then things could get worse. And we're doing these trainings. We're trying to push things in the right direction. And I'm not. I don't think that was the right approach at the time. But I think. You, the problem that you've raised is also really, really important that it's not just about is the U.S. supporting the war or not supporting the war, which is a critical question, but also what's happening, um, you know, to Yemenis in Yemen and is the war still going and, and what are our obligations in terms of not just ending, you know, coalition airstrikes, but actually ensuring that the conflict ends. Well, so let's say you had, you know, let's say you had a, uh, uh, the power to make like a bold suggestion and, and be taken seriously by a, by a U.S. administration uh, today. What does uh, the, a proper progressive U.S. engagement in Yemen look like? And on on two scores: one, the like, what should the U.S. be doing to try and uh, uh, accelerate an end to the conflict? And two, what would this kind of holistic long-term support that you were talking about in the first part of our conversation, what would that look like in Yemen, you know, going forward in 2023, 2024, uh, if we had a progressive U.S. that was that was actually interested in addressing long-term root causes? Yeah. So, and the funny thing is, is the answer is not that um, all that exciting, but I think, um, you know, I wouldn't say what, what the Biden administration is doing is, is perfect, but I think um, they're doing along the lines of what I would suggest and what progressive and progressives actually have advocated for, for years, which is to, um, you know, say that there isn't a military solution to this conflict to, uh, facilitate uh, an international kind of UN-led negotiation process, um, one that's focused on ending the violence, but also on trying to find some kind of longer-term uh, framework for negotiations, for a transition, um, and, and pushing our partners in kind of the right direction to keep them uh, engaged in the process. You I think mean that's, our, our partners, the, Sa- the Saudis and the Emiratis? Yes, those partners. <laughs> 
And did you have more to say about what the sort of uh, uh, investment in a uh, root causes approach to stability would look like in a you know in a post post conflict Yemen or in a you know late uh, late in the negotiations Yemen? Yeah, so I think I think you've highlighted and and I've also heard um, you know a lot of Yemeni analysts worry about is that the U.S. will, you know, find something that kind of looks like a solution to the or to ending the conflict and then kind of, you know, wipe our hands and say, oh, we're done with this. We fixed it. Um, and that the conflict, maybe the international direct intervention will end, but the conflict itself will continue because the conflict is about or, or began um, about, again, these local localized issues about grievances, about the distribution of resources, about regional divisions, um, ideas about how the state should be run, how people should be governed. Um, it's not just about the international uh, element of the conflict. So um, I, what I hope for is to see a, a really sustained engagement and one that is where we continue to focus on diplomacy, even if um, you know the international elements of the conflict seem to be winding down and keep bringing uh, the parties to the table, keep pressing them to find solutions, keep international pressure and the spotlight on them uh, to come to these negotiations. And then and then in a, um, in a longer term sense, to just continue to provide the really intense diplomatic and, and development support that is needed to support that kind of transition um, with a focus not just on you know, kind of rushing to get to elections and something that resembles a democracy, but really on, um, like what we talked about earlier, a just transition about uh, uh, documenting abuses and human rights violations, for example. And this, I mean, this is part of what's such a thorny problem. And I think progressives have done a really poor job uh, in general dealing with is, you know, a, a group like the like the Houthis are not uh, uh, natural values-based partners for the United States either, right? So, you know, it's not helpful to uh, uh, put a group like the Houthis or Hezbollah in Lebanon or, you know, other like indigenous, authentic, enduring, uh, powerful constituencies. It's not helpful to put those on a terror list and say, well, we're never going to deal with those groups. And in fact, it's national policy to, to hope that those groups disappear, right? That, that you know, paints us into a corner and also sets up something that that's impossible as a policy objective. These groups are not like ISIS or Al Qaeda. These aren't tiny fringe extreme groups that actually can be uh, marginalized within their societies. These are major ongoing parts of, of societies that, that, that we deal with. Um, and so on the one hand, we need to accept the reality of the presence of these groups in the governance and, 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 and structure and power structure of, of these countries. On the other hand, we can't pretend it's not a problem. We can't pretend that like it's only, you know, uh, uh, extremist Republicans and the FDD approach that's a problem. These groups are also a problem. They're a problem for the societies they're in. They're a problem for U.S. interests. They're a problem for U.S. partners. They're a problem for America's natural allies in a place like Yemen. Um, and I think, you know, progressives can get, I mean, what the way 
the way I have tried to deal with this is by thinking about um, policy and interest in terms of rights and to say like, okay, our goals, uh, there are U.S. goals in Yemen, like the goals of many of America's partners in Yemen, is to have a rights-based, accountable society. And, you know, one can at least theoretically imagine uh, that framework eventually causing uh, a, gr a group like the Houthis to function like a like a uh, sort of acceptable, uh, accountable group. Now it's unlikely that they will, but at least we're not saying the goal is for this the Houthis to to disappear. The goal is for the Houthis to behave under the rule of law like. Uh, we would like, by the way, the other the U.S. partner groups to behave, which they often don't either. And we criticize them in that case for violating human rights and the laws of war and, and committing war crimes. Um, so I think we do need to uh, think about and talk about that because part of the solution, I mean, you know, it's reasonable for the United States to want to be safe from the threats posed by groups like the Houthis and Hezbollah and Al-Qaeda and ISIS, and they're not all the same, and they're not da-da-da, but on the other hand, they really are a problem, um, a security problem and a governance problem, um, and we have to we have to have a, a better approach to addressing that if we want to say, like, stop securitizing everything and the forever war, don't cram everything under the rubric of counterterrorism, great, then what is our answer for the Houthis? Uh, for example. Yeah, and I think I think you've articulated the, the dilemma really well. It's really hard to to think about and talk about, and um, it, it's in some ways it's not the same thing, but it it's presents a similar set of dilemmas, um, maybe to our approach to Afghanistan now, right? Where there's this um, you know violent fundamentalist group that is incredibly repressive towards women <laughs> that, uh, you know, is in charge of, of some of the structures of government and, and controls territory. And so, in, of course, we don't want them to be there. They're not nice, good actors, um, but they are. So then those are the facts on the ground. Um, and we've spent a long time, you know, learning <laughs> that there isn't going to be a military solution to that problem. There's no amount of bombing or, or, you know, logistical support that's going to make that go away. So then what do you do about that? And it is really hard because, um, you know, if I were Yemeni, I would probably be pretty upset that the, for that, the idea of, of the Houthis having some role in a future government, but I also don't know how, right. Do you not feed starving is. people if those starving mm -hmm. people are under the control of the Houthis or the Taliban in Afghanistan or, uh, who, whoever the the problem group is, and I, I agree, it's just it's a messy problem because you know do we, we I don't think we want to be in a position of of letting people starve whom we could stop from starving. On the other hand, we also don't want to be in the position of propping up uh, a, a violent you know de facto propping up a terrible violent extremist group uh, by enabling their survival and governance by you know providing the services that they're failing to provide. Yeah, exactly. And it's not, it's not an easy problem. And I don't think there's, you know, one good solution or a silver bullet, but it's something that we need to really reckon with and, and talk about honestly. Well, well, Alex, let's, let's keep working on how to talk about this, like, you know, five, $5 for $1, uh, uh replacement for counterterrorism where we, where we have like food governance, accountability and reconstruction, uh, along with, 
droning uh, as our answer to extremist violence. Um, and and if if one could get that to be part of the template for the way an engaged internationalist progressive foreign policy thinks of itself, then maybe we'll drone less. Uh, but when we do, it'll be much more effective because it's going to be followed by these by these things. And I'll just say one last thing. I know I'm I'm I'm, I'm uh, talking more than I should, but I get I, I got so excited about all the ideas you you provoked. Um, it it strikes me uh, that we can also make an argument about uh, staying engaged that builds on the the comfort with ambiguity that the war on terror created, and to say like okay like. For 20 years, when it comes to bombing and killing people in, in foreign countries, Americans have gotten very comfortable about ignoring any kind of results-based measurement and accountability, right? No one actually says, oh, the war on terror was a failure because it didn't end terrorism. They say like, oh, well, you know, like we don't really care what the metrics are. We understand that like staying engaged in this fight is sort of its own its own uh, logic. Um, and I'd say like, okay, if you're willing to accept that with, with destruction, let's accept that with constructive things as well and stop pretending that these, that, that constructive international engagement has to produce uh, uh, metrics based results right away. And just say like, part of what we pay for is having skin in the game constructively. Right. So part of what we pay for by having some kind of uh, uh, long-term investment in Yemen would just be like having a seat at the table in Yemen and having credibility and like, yeah, maybe these things won't produce a, a Swiss, a Swiss-like justice system for Yemen, but uh, you know, it's undeniably a sound investment to spend money on ambiguously result uh, uh, constructive uh, programs for justice, accountability, and, and reconstruction. Yeah, I, I think that's a really useful way to to think about it. And you know, as you know, the the in reality, it's the other way around. So the overwhelming emphasis of our funding of our budgeting is spent on uh, military stuff, with a very tiny, teeny tiny percent on um, anything related to the State Department and USAID and all of the diplomacy and development activity that falls under that. And if we could re- even you know start to reverse that that um, disparity, I think that would be a really useful step. Well, and, and that's actually a great setup because next uh, next week's uh, podcast is Becca Wasser talking about the size of the U.S. military footprint in the Gulf. Uh, so if you thought this conversation was uh, interesting and generative, uh, please uh, tune in uh, to the next podcast as well. Uh, Alex, I think we have to stop because it's almost 40 minutes that we've been talking, uh, but I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and uh, sharing your thoughts. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I I, I really enjoyed it and I, I learned so much from our conversation. So it's a lot of fun. You were just hearing from Alex Stark, a fellow at the New America Foundation. I'm Thanasi Kambanis, and this is Order from Ashes, Century International's International Affairs podcast. And uh, this is part of a regular series uh, that we're beginning on what progressive foreign policy would really look like uh, down in the, in the weeds with specifics on the major issues facing us as we move forward in a chaotic world. Uh, thanks for listening. And uh, uh, if you like this podcast, please let your friends know. And... Uh, We'll be talking to you again next week. Thanks. The Order from Ashes podcast has been brought to you by Century International. 
Our work builds on more than 100 years of commitment to international peace, security, and governance at the Century Foundation. We are independent, critical, and progressive. For more information about Century International's work, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. We depend on audience feedback to reach new listeners. If you like what you hear, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts.